You're listening to Public Announcement. I'm James Ellis. And I'm Chris Black. Today we have a special episode of the show from the 2017 Food Book Fair in New York. Uh, recorded on location live uh, at the Ace Hotel. In, in Some would call it Midtown. I would call it Nomad because that's like the cool name for the neighborhood. <laughs> How did our general interest podcast find its way to the food world? Funny you ask that, Jay. Funny you ask that. Uh, my buddy and uh, now friend of the show, Nicholas Morgenstern, um, a.k.a. the Ice Cream Man, was helping the Food Book Fair's co-directors, uh, Kimberly Chow and, and Amanda Dell, um, with, with the whole endeavor this year. He, he thought it would be cool if we helped produce an edit from the panel discussion. As well as conversations with Food World personalities uh, recorded from the lobby of the Ace. The streets have spoken and they demanded another pod collaboration uh, with our man in the field, Jason Stewart, uh, a.k.a. Them Jeans. Jason interviewed authors, chefs, and even a few innocent bystanders from the always popping and dimly lit uh, Ace Hotel lobby. Okay, what's, what's your favorite alternative crouton? Oh, I make polenta croutons. Those are like badass croutons. Hell yeah. This episode is in two parts. First, you'll hear our edit of the panel discussion. That's the first 40 minutes. Followed by some of our favorite moments from Jason's interviews. Should we put a song here? Yeah. Maybe we should. Like, like uh, what does this American Life say? Oh, like a show, uh, a show in two acts. Like Act One, the panel. Act One, yes. <laughs> uh, we should do that. Uh, but let's play a song. We can find something good and, and then come back, situate the listener properly for the panel. Right. Right. Cool. You're listening to Public Announcement. I'm James Ellis. And I'm Chris Black. Right, so let's get into it. What um, what is the Food Book Fair? The Food Book Fair is a combination of a festival and a conference, uh, and it's all all focused on food culture. It's a celebration of food media. So not only food books, but magazines, food film, and podcasts. That's Amanda Dell, one of the co-directors of the Food Book Fair. The fair has even been called, and I quote, the Coachella of writing about eating, which is hilarious. Uh, but the big draw is something called Foodioticals, uh, which is basically all the best food magazines in one place. We were there for the keynote, kicking off the fair with a panel discussion titled What We Talk About When We Talk About Eating. That's co-director Kimberly Chow. Um, she described the panel as An exploration about how we eat, cook, produce, distribute, document food today in the U.S., in the world in 2017. The panel featured major names from the food world. Yeah, these people are, are truly, truly dedicated to the game, uh, passionate and well-spoken, and not, not just about cooking, uh, but about the business and, and the politics of it all. I, I loved it. You know, you, you know I love a good panel discussion. And as a general interest podcast, I think it's very important uh, to share this access with, with the global listenership. Yeah, well, let's let's introduce everyone. Uh, you'll be hearing from Mario Batali. The chef, restaurateur, philanthropist, wearer of many, many hats. And Crocs. And Crocs. Dr. Maisha Priest. An associate professor at NYU, an author. She teaches about the politics of food. Ken Friedman. Restaurateur, owner of the Breslin Bar and Dining Room, John Dory Oyster Bar within Ace Hotel, The Spotted Pig, as well as many other fine establishments. Samin Nosrat. Who is is a teacher, a cook, author most recently of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Heavy hitters. Major names. And Frank Bruni as moderator. Very major. Uh, but let's get to it. Kim can introduce Frank. Let's go to the Ace Hotel's Liberty Hall. And moderated by our fearless moderator tonight, Frank Bruni, columnist for the New York Times and author of, most recently, A Meatloaf in Every Oven. I'll let Frank take it away. Thank you. Thank you all for joining us tonight. I got to correct one thing. You said I'm a columnist for the New York Times. I'm a columnist for the failing New York Times. <laughs> the okay. fake news failing be, yeah. New York Times. Fake news. Thank you all for being here. The very title of tonight's event sort of suggests that eating in some ways has become more complicated, 
people come at it with uh, much more sophistication. Ken, you've been in this business for a long time. You opened The Spotted Pig in 2004, but you've opened restaurants in recent years. How does opening a restaurant these days differ from back then, and how's that reflective of this evolving food scene? Opening a restaurant now is harder just because it's more, everything's more expensive. We've opened a few restaurants. Opening restaurants to us is kind of like making albums. You know, you make the first album was The Spotted Pig, and that was kind of all, all the ideas that we had for our whole lives. And then, as Frank and I were just talking about, the second album we made was the first John Dory, which failed. You know, we had to remix it and move it to here. It's just, you know, every time you open a new restaurant, it's, it's, unless you recreate something, it's a new idea, and you never know if it's really going to work or not. If you open restaurants to kind of creatively satisfy yourself, um, that's what happens. But it's, it's just more expensive. Rent's more expensive. If you want to be in a neighborhood that's full of people wandering around, the rent's high and everything is more expensive. But what about the expectations and the sophistication of diners? Are there things you could get away with back in 2004 that you can no longer get away with now? Well, I mean, in, near, in a place like New York City or, or San Francisco where you have a place, or L.A., which is, you know, a, a super hot food town now, there's just so many choices people have. So you, you can either kind of follow and do a poke restaurant or do an avocado toast restaurant, or you, can, or, you think, or you can think of a new idea and do something brand new and hope it works, and it sometimes doesn't. You have to be really good at it and do something that gets people to not just walk by your place and go to the place next door. So, I mean, your book just came out, what, three weeks ago? Yes. By the way, I've heard amazing, amazing things about this book. Congratulations Thank on you. it. Thank um, you. You were working on it for a very, very long time, right? Yes. <laughs> we have brought so much more science into the kitchen, um, and I think that's reflected sort of in your book's title. Um, how much do you think our evolving, you know, our greater understanding of the science of cooking is actually serving what we eat and, and helping you write a book that's going to be more helpful to home cooks? Um, I think all eaters have become much more sophisticated and certainly home cooks. And I think science is a great tool for us. My approach is I'm not a scientist. I actually don't feel that confident in my science. I did a lot of homework and reading and filtering and trying to put it into everyday language that I could understand and hopefully you could understand because I think it helps to know why you're making decisions. And I think that's what's missing from a lot of recipes and from a lot of cookbooks. Um, and I think that's the way to become more independent and able to trust your instincts and your senses. But I do think there's a place where, um, you know, there's a, there's a limit, right? And at some point, maybe knowing all of the science or knowing why every single thing is happening or how to make every single tiny little perfect thing is kind of too much for the average home cook. And it becomes work instead of joyful. And for me, everything is in service of joy and pleasure and bringing people together. So if you know that adding salt to your vegetables will draw water out and cause them to steam in the pan, but what you're trying to do is brown them, um, so Stop maybe, it. then don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and if you know that you can make that choice, um, and that can help you make a more delicious dinner for your family and your loved ones, then I think that's great. But I don't know. I'm not that fussy. I'm pretty unfussy. So I'm about making science be a tool, but that's it. <laughs> Along those lines, what's the most common mistake that you think people make in the kitchen that's easily avoidable, but people are just in the dark? Um, well, I think probably it's that most people I've, I see, they don't preheat their pans when they're cooking. And so it's really important to preheat your pan and then preheat the fat and then put your food in so that it can start browning more quickly and cooking more quickly. It's respecting your fat. And a lot of times um, it keeps your food from sticking to the pan. And people just a lot of times think, oh, I'm in such a hurry, let me just get my food in there. But actually it'll cook more quickly and more evenly if you wait a second for it to heat up. Mario, you do cookbooks, you do food TV, and of course you do restaurants. Which of those realms has changed the most over the course of your career? Um, well, they've all changed a bit, but I would say the restaurant business has changed the most. And echoing what Ken said, it's not just the cost, though, but it's when we opened Poe, no one was anxiously awaiting for us to open the door. So you had a chance to warm up a little bit and kind of get your feet underneath you before the breathless throngs, before the critics, and before... I mean, at this point, they have the plywood report. Like, hold on, there's plywood in that window. We must know more about this restaurant. It's just like, let them breathe a little bit. They're probably doing some reconstruction in there. There's a lot more 
intense excitement or at least interest in things as they open immediately, which doesn't give them a lot of chance to kind of percolate. So that means you really have to kind of presuppose what you're going to do, and you have to be probably more practiced than you had to be when I opened Poe in 1993. Is there a restaurant you've opened that you think was really hurt and undermined by, by all of that breathless attention that comes right at the start or even the plywood phase? No. <laughs> I wouldn't say that they are all may as... I may I suggest no. one or two? Just kidding. No, no. No, no. I don't think it was hurt. I just don't think we were ready. Which one? I would say La Serena. We weren't quite ready because we weren't really as cognizant of the specificity of the message we should have developed. We thought we would make really good Italian food, but everyone came to expect from me and my team something with far more defined opinion about something very, very specific. And now we have that, but it took us a year and some tepid criticism to uh, realize that. And it was, because it was such a big place, I was trying to appeal to a larger mass, which in my heart I know now and I assumed then, but I tried to get over it, is completely wrong. <laughs> is there a restaurant that there's no longer a market or an appetite for? And Ken, if you have a feeling about this, I'd be curious to hear. You mean a genre of restaurants? Or a kind of restaurant, a genre, an altitude of restaurant that just won't make it anymore in a city like this or, or in most American cities? I mean, I think if, if something is really done well, like I mentioned poke places or all-day breakfast places are happening now a lot, the best one will survive and the other ones will go away. You know, I, I mean, I think I'm more of a design guy, you know, and I mean, Bear Edison light bulbs like we have in, we have in here, those are sort of over and taxidermy. Nice work, Ken. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, I know. We, that, that's from like Williamsburg 15 years ago. Those. I'll step in just a little bit. I would say that restaurants that purport to be something for everybody are the ones that are kind of going away, where they have the Caribbean part and the Italian part and the French part and the pizza part and the Southeast Asian part. Because when Lydia Shire did that 25 years ago, it was because she was a erudite and well-informed. Now it's more like it's a watered-down version of all of those, none of which are that well exposed, expressed, or even well thought. But also, on the, on the other hand, those restaurants that just do one thing, like champagne and chicken or french fries or, you know, I think there were a lot of those for a while, and in London especially there were a lot of those, and I think just they all kind of went away except for like the one. There's that one french fry place in East Village that's the best one, Palm Frites, all the other ones went away. So I think that idea that you, where you just do one thing is a little bit silly for the most part. Maisha, you uh, we're going to talk about the politics of food, which is what you write about, what you teach about. But since we're on the subject of restaurants and you're not a restaurateur but a consumer, what bothers you most about the New York restaurant scene? Um, gosh, I didn't expect to be thinking about from the perspective of a consumer, but I think... What most, pisses you off? What pisses yeah. me off? What do you hate? Um, I guess pretension and um, odd claims to mastery. Someone, for example, travels to another country for a summer and learns from the folk in whatever country it is and then comes back and is marked on their website as a master in whatever cuisine. Um, I have a lot of suspicion about that um, for a number of reasons. I think the idea of mastery of another cuisine that perhaps someone's been cooking for a lifetime. They've inherited knowledge from aunties, from grandmothers. That's a kind of mastery you can't really get from a more touristic experience. And yet that's often the voice of cuisines um, that we hear as consumers in the United States and especially in New York City. Um, and I think it's a striking and strange thing because New York City is such an international city um, that in fact we could hear voices of cuisines in different ways but we don't seem to. Um, so I have a lot of suspicion about that. I actually, when I first moved to New York, I loved the restaurants that had like pizza and sushi because I just couldn't understand that. <laughs> and I thought that it was the most. Nor could they. <laughs> And I would just walk around and sort of marvel, like, how are these cuisines cooked in the same kitchen? You don't even use the same kind of herbs, you know, what, what is it? But I did come to love that part of New York City as a sort of zany, mismatching. Um, and so I, I will miss those when they go, those odd restaurants that have, you know, Caribbean food and, um, you know, champagne or whatever. Um, because I feel like that's part of the personality of New York City that weirdness, and I'm not sure that I want everything to be so smooth and so streamlined and so easily identifiable. How does one define or draw the line between paying respect 
to another cuisine and casually exploiting it? <laughs> Good question. My questions right? don't seem like everybody else's questions. Um, it's because Ken gave me a martini before. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he also great. gave me sparkling wine, but it didn't have that effect on me. Um, I think there are, there are a couple of things. I mean, one thing that's important to me when I see um, claims made on menus or websites um, about cuisines that are either American, right, that's one way of, of naming something, or not, right, exotic cuisines, is um, their association or the removal from history and geography. Um, some of you may have seen there was, a, there was a really interesting article in the past week or so in the New York, the failing New York Times? <laughs> Uh, about fake news, so perhaps either this works. Failing fake news, we respond to it all. About Asian food, right? Why is Asian food on the menu? That was, I think, that was the title of the piece, and it talked about this weird homogeneity in how we. Uh, what is it? Uh, G Governor Sal's is it General Sal's chicken? Oh, Sorry, right. I'm a vegetarian, so you do recognize um, chickens. Though. I do. Oh, okay, I do. Um, but why there's a certain kind of homogeneity in the way that we present those um, across the board. Um, and so Asia is this imagined territory from which these foods come. But in fact, Asia has a number of countries in it, right? It has Japan, it has China, it has Vietnam, it has parts of India. There are lots of Asian foods, right? So I always feel concerned when there's no geography in a dish, when it's African. I mean, Africa is an imagined place, really, because it's full of nations, right? Um, I also really uh, wonder when there's no history attached to a dish. Um, Nicholas and I actually worked together on a dessert, which was an amazing honor for me. And that was one of the things that we tried to think about. How do you use a history to which you, we're all associated with these histories, right? How do you make use of it without appropriating it? As you were talking about that, Mario, I couldn't help but think about your most recent cookbook, which is all about regional cuisines, regional dishes. Is there one of those dishes that, that the history of which, the story behind it, particularly fascinated you? I think just about everything from New Orleans is that for me because it's such a mishmash. And, I, and I, I found that a lot about the Southwest just because I love the flavors and I love the way that they come together even though Southwest cooking isn't really Mexican and it really isn't Texan and it really isn't New, New Orleans, I mean, uh, any part of the Southwest. But I, I think my question that's kind of, I hear a lot about cultural appropriation. And it seems to me that it's, it's being approached as a sin and as a cook, is authenticity my highest goal? Imagine I was a painter, and I traveled to Africa, and then I traveled to China. Using some of those influences in an unpure way, is that wrong? I mean, is, is cultural appropriation the bad word that everyone seems to throw it around me is feeling? What do you guys think? Well, I mean, you know, there'd be no Rolling Stones or Beatles, or, you know, if they, they, they weren't influenced by what was happening in the South in America. I mean, people steal ideas from each other. You know, that's just what happens. I think it's a good thing. Imitation is the purest form of flattery or however it goes. So, yeah, I think it's good. I feel really complicated about this question, and I think some of it comes down to um, language. And I was just having a conversation on Twitter about this with somebody, and... Donald Trump? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, it forced me to go back and actually read a definition of cultural appropriation, which I've been one of those people really angry about it, you know, and I realized I also could be accused of that. I lived in Italy for two years and have, I made pasta every day of my life for 10 years. So I think of myself as a pretty good pasta maker, but I'm not Italian, you know, and so do I deserve to get to say that I'm a pretty good pasta maker? I don't know. Hell yes. <laughs> and, um, but I think appropriation so much of it is about lack of respect and lack of acknowledgement, whereas maybe cultural influence, influ or what are some other words for, what are the, like, what, there's so many gray areas. I feel like you will probably know a lot of this language very well. None of it is really sufficient, but I think that the idea of thinking of yourself as collaborating um, with uh, those whom, from whom you're borrowing and acknowledging the borrowing is an important part of it, right? I mean, when one of the things that I thought about when um, you asked that question is, is Picasso, for example, and his Cubist work. Most people don't know that he's really influenced by African art. Sure. And that's important. There was that fantastic exhibit at the MoMA maybe 30 years ago, and you saw, you walked in, and you said, so that's where he got yes. all of this stuff. And, but the reason that is important is because we don't think of Africa as a place from which art comes. 
And that has everything to do with how we think about the hierarchy of culture and the value of African cultures. So it's not a problem that he was influenced and inspired by African art because it's, like all kinds of art, incredibly beautiful. The problem is that it's unnamed and that we start valuing art, valuing what appears to be African art, only when we see it through the lens of Picasso. Right, And so it is a very tangled, I mean, I can't imagine what in my kitchen is rightfully mine, right? But is it important, though? I mean, do you have to write footnotes to all of the things that you do to belie the fact that you've been influenced by all these people? I mean, I remember the very first time I used to, I've listened to Tom Waits all of my life as long as I possibly could. I remember the first time I went to a Klezmer concert and I'm like, huh, that's where he got it all. But I don't feel that he stole it from them. He just happened to have picked up a lot of the quirky nuance that I find that culture. But I don't feel that he had to say, by the way, I've spent some time in klezmer music circles. I think for me, one of the reasons it is important is because when we establish the value of not just cuisines, but the cultures who make them, that has political consequence. So right now we're in a moment where we have certain rights that are enshrined in our constitution, but we're learning they don't apply equally to each kind of person. So when we don't value people equally, it, has, right, it can have life or death consequences uh, for certain people. And so I think that's why it's important to name your influences and your, and your collaborators, because their invisibility makes them less politically important, less politically visible. And in some cases, that can mean, mean annihilation or death in certain ways. Uh, for me, there isn't anything more important than naming those to whom you are connected. Right? I don't think of it as theft, because I think that we're influenced by this amazingly diverse world that we live in. But I think that the erasure of those connections is enormously consequential. So, I mean, since we're sort of on the subject of ethnic cuisines, in the research and the cooking for your book, was there a genre, an ethnicity of cooking that most surprised you and that you came to believe we understand the least well? Oh, man. I cannot speak for everyone. Um, for you. I, for you. <laughs> for me, absolutely. You know, I'm a geek, I'm a total geek, and I love sort of following threads and imagining how geography has affected things and history has affected things. And so there are certain tastes and geographies and cultures that I have maybe spent more time um, digging back through. And absolutely, I felt really weak in my knowledge of um, various South American and Caribbean cuisines, of West African cuisines. In fact, we have a few um, charts in the book that are sort of like a... They're almost like flavor maps of the world of different fats and acids and spices used around the world. And uh, my collaborator, Wendy McNaughton, she has, uh, she's an illustrator, but she's had this incredible past, including she did a lot of social work and nonprofit work in Africa, in West Africa. And so I just sort of jotted down on my first round all of the countries I could think of and all the foods that I could think of. And she wrote back to me, she said, we can't publish this, where's Africa? Like that's a huge part, you know? And so I, it really became something I became deeply aware of not knowing about. And then I became really paranoid. So I went and did a whole bunch of homework. <laughs> but um, it's a big world and it's, I think as long as, as long as, um, as curiosity is the, thing that guides us forward, I think it's okay. You know, like we're all gonna make mistakes, but yeah. I, I wanna ask a question, I want all of you to answer it, you know, one by one, but I think uh, acknowledged by the title of this panel is more than ever, I think we find our self-image in how and what we eat, both in and out. Um, Ken, when you look at how you eat, whether, you, whether it's in or out, what tells us something about your values and what's the key to who you are and the way you approach food? Wow, that's a great question. I was trying to get the bartender's attention and get you another martini, so I didn't really, I wasn't really focusing on it, but... Um. We're, ha we're halfway home. I can put down another one, yeah. Another martini, please. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand the question. In terms of how you approach eating out or eating in, where do we see Ken Friedman? Where do we see the distinctive personality and values of Ken Friedman? It's changed a lot now that I'm in the business. You know, I mean, I mean my... My whole adult life, I was sort of obsessed with and fascinated by public assembly in general. And I went from kind of clubs, because I was in the music business for a long time, you know, to kind of restaurants, which are sort of clubs for adults. You sit instead of stand and you eat instead of take drugs. You know, I always loved great food and kind of fancy food, but I never really dressed up. So I was always the one going to restaurants and being told, sorry, you need to wear a jacket. And I never understood why that, why. And, so when I thought about for years opening my first place, it was, you know, a place 
that I wanted to go to, you know. And I think great artists make art for themselves, not for anybody else. You know, I don't think Bob Dylan, you know, thinks I'm going to make a song like the radio sounds today. So I made a place that I wanted to go to. And now that I'm older, I sort of like getting dressed up and having a date night and going to a fancy place. And I don't mind sort of making a reservation in advance. And the problem with getting older for me is I don't want to eat all that rich food because I'll get fat, especially now that it's summer. <laughs> um, when I go out now, I just try to eat the simplest kind of stuff. I like to go to Chinatown. We like to go to Queens. I sort of want to avoid kind of like hip, fancy, trendy restaurants that have avocado toast and poke. Mario, what's, what's a facet or habit of your eating life that tells us a lot about you? Uh, as the elder spokesperson for this group. How old are you? I'm 56. When? Look a day over 55, I Thank swear. Thank you very much. I would say that um, over the last 20 years, what used to fascinate me the most was what the chef did to manipulate the product. I was as much about technique as I was about the location, as I was about the lighting, as I was about the wine list, as I was about the music. And at this point in my life, I am far less interested in the frippery or the technical components of the chefiness of things, both at my house and when I go to restaurants. And I'm far more interested in the authenticity or the remarkableness of a product itself all by itself raw. Whereas I used to try and go and order the fancy stuff, which all over the three-star Michelin restaurants in the 80s was foie gras and caviar and smoked salmon. At this point, I like foie gras when I'm in Le Lande. I like the kind of oyster that grows in Bologna when I'm in Bologna. I like the kind of granulotti that's in Torino when I'm in Torino. So I'm more looking for things that tell me the story of the place and are ne not necessarily jacked up by technique, but are more about the simple ingredients of that time of the year and about that kind of confidence of cook. We were talking, uh, I'd like to kind of bring a conversation that you and I had on the sidelines out to the stage. In terms of this self-image and food and all that, we were talking about how politicians, um, how part of the politics of food is politicians saying a lot about their identities through what they telegraph to the world about what they eat. Um, have you noticed that with the current president, with the last president? What would you say about that? Yes, of course. I mean, I think we've all seen those, um, you know, the very regular gestures of presidents stopping in certain places to have food. And it's never foie gras. It's always fried chicken or hot dogs or pizza or um, pancakes, right? It's all, it's, it's very class-marked food. It's food that marks those president, presidential candidates as, or associates them with the working class, right? With the regular guy. Regular people. Yes. And as we talked about, both Trump and um, Bush W. worked hard to cultivate this image um, when, in fact, they were as far from a sort of, quote-unquote, regular person as you could get as far as class is concerned. And so I think it's a, it's a really important and uh, sort of continuous gesture of presidential, um, of politicians, period, right, to mark themselves through these performances of eating food. Um, I thought Obama's was particularly interesting. You know, there were all kinds of cartoons about he and Michelle, and I don't know if you, if some of you might remember the one where um, they showed Michelle, uh, she, they made her heavier than she is, and she was kind of lurking over this hamburger. Obama was sitting there and, you know, identified by the cartoon, by his big ears, and he was eating, like, a piece of lettuce. So it, it, it literally, it, he had a piece not, of lettuce. Not his, his nightly plate. seven almonds that we read not about. Not the almonds, not the almonds, just a piece of lettuce. So they had him as a kind of, you know, esthete, and her as this sort of greedy gourmand. And it was a really strange sort of talkback, I guess, to the ways in which they used food to try to mark themselves as the people's president and, and first lady, right? Um, but one of the interesting things we were talking about on the sidelines is how um, I'm sure everybody's seen, or most of us have seen, when Obama lands in Hawaii, his home, his home state, and he has the shaved ice, right? To land himself, that, you know, that's, for me, that I'd have a burrito. I'd land in San Francisco, I'd go straight to the mission, right? So we all have these um, practices um, that mark us and bring us home. But his is so interesting because shaved ice is a, it's the mark of the conqueror, right, for lack of a better word. Um, ice and its entrance into Hawaii was a very concerted and conscious way to drive Hawaiians away from their indigenous foods. And it became a mark of privilege and power to have ice. 
So it's just amazing that then the president of the United States, who wants to make this claim to us through the eating of this dessert, that he's one of the people, is eating this really complex dessert. I mean, it couldn't be more complicated. But it isn't, though. The dessert itself isn't. It's the not history of the exactly. ice is complicated. Ice is complicated. Eating <laughs> ice right now is what the poor right. people eat. Right. So, I mean, it's well, not, I mean, don't get too confused about the historical perspective of the ice's introduction to being something that Obama is classlessly making a mistake. Oh, I don't Eating I a $1 cone, right? Way. All right. No, but what I'm saying is that ice is, um, ice in the tropics is complicated. It's completely unnatural, I guess, is my point. Sort of establishing his presence through this dish is, I think, one way in which um, political candidates have expressed themselves through food. Well, we're on the subject of the Obamas. You cooked a state dinner, right? I did. Um, for the Obamas. For the Obamas. The last one. Tell us a little bit about that. What was most surprising about that whole experience? Um, the whole thing was glorious for me. It was my, my greatest moment as an American cook was to cook at the White House. And... Um, Mrs. Obama's been coming to our restaurants for a long time, a little bit less Mr. the president himself, but she's a big foodie, and that's why she was portrayed as the chummy gourmand huzzing over that burger. But going through the menu ideas with her and her group of like 10 best friends was a presentation that was fraught with a lot of nerves, and we had a really good time, and she finally chose a couple of dishes, and then we went down to make them, and I'm like, well, so when do we drive the truck in with all the prep food? And they're like... You don't drive a truck into the White House, asshole. So we had to order all the food raw, and then with four people that I was allowed, make dinner for 400 people in 24 hours, which was a more grueling task than I expected. And then they hand you, or hand you, they direct you to um, the Navy mess, which is the West Wing cooking group. And they're basically Navy SEALs who are ready to do whatever you want. So you're like... I have an army of Navy SEALs. I'm like, all right, so guys, when we chop parsley, we stand like this, and they all go like this. I'm like, I was joking, put your leg down. And uh, it was just, it was a great experience. The White House is a serious place. They have serious well, ones. Well, it was, you're right. Now, it's not. But it was a great experience, and they are fantastic. They were fantastic. Uh, in their presidential world, and I look forward to seeing what they're going to do now. And a lot of people say, well, would you go cook at the White House for the present president? And my answer is, of course, I would go to the White House because I value the office more than any inhabitant, no matter what, because I'm a big-time lover of the American ideology, even in the bad days or the good days. And you have to look past that at all times, even though at 120 days, I'm fucking exhausted. I mean, if you had to cook, if you were called on to cook for the current president, what, what would you make him, and I don't mean a mini pie, I don't mean a mini pie, what would you make him and why? I'd probably make him Persian food. Uh, my family's from Iran. Yeah. Um, it's really delicious, and... Uh, yeah, it's undeniably delicious, and I think that would probably be the most powerful statement that I could make, is to make... I have had a lot of relatives who've been harassed. I've been harassed. Um, I think a lot of times actions speak louder than words, so if, if I were able to cook, that would probably be the most powerful thing I could do, yeah. Ken or Mario, has either of you had Melania or Donald in your restaurants? I've seen them at other people's restaurants. <laughs> Which restaurants? The 21 Club. That's where he goes. That's where he has his well-done steak or his well-done hamburger. He sits around. He shakes a lot of hands. He tells everybody he's going to cut their taxes, and then he leaves. Before and now. Does he pay the check before he leaves? I've never seen him pay the check, but I'm sure he did. Like, I wouldn't dispute... I'm not so sure. I've met really? a lot of people who've been stiffed. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's that puts open him this... even lower than I thought. That's what? That makes him even a lower guy than I thought. Let's open this up to questions from you all for any of these four. Is there, do you want this microphone or do you have a microphone? Okay. Will you pick the people and, well, because you're out there. I'm just back here. And, so if anyone has a question and wants to be the first brave one to go, raise your hand. I'll come over. How about Nas and the Red Jacket? Okay. I just wanted to follow up on the cultural appropriation bit. Um, more than anything, I think we are all very uncomfortable talking about race, and it's less about influence than it is about white people taking something that a brown person has had in their culture, or a black person, or a yellow person in their culture for years, and saying that they discovered it. 
in a way, right? Um, so I experienced this firsthand when everybody, all of my friends on Instagram started making cuckoo sabzi this spring because Bon Appetit did a video on it. And it was like, at first I was like, yay, I'm Iranian, Iranian food, everybody's recognizing it. And then I was like, oh my God, no, in like five years, no one will even know cuckoo sabzi was an Iranian thing. It'll be like in some white dude's restaurant. And I think that that's definitely an important aspect of it. And I'm curious if that changes, specifically Mario, because you seem to think that it was more about influence. And that line is a little bit different, actually. Well, I, I would say that if a really great dish from the Philippines or from a particular province in China or from Iran or from West Africa or from South America, Chile, for example, comes our way and we adopt it as a delicious dish, I don't think that it loses its cultural identity. I just think that there's a bunch of other people making it and that doesn't necessarily denigrate it or make the practicers of making that dish wrong. I don't think the Italians feel embarrassed, although they're slightly insulted by the crappy lasagna we serve here. I don't think that they feel that we've culturally appropriated anything in a way that dismisses their the depth of their culture, nor the skill of the originators of that fantastic recipe. So I look at it a little differently, but that's because I'm a borrower, not, I don't ever take credit for this stuff. I always look at the work that I do as interpreting 2,000 or 3,000 years of gastronomic cultural history in the Italian culture. I don't say, hey, look, I invented this. I mean, my signature dishes like beef cheek ravioli are based on ravioli brisato from the Piemonte. And I use things that are from here, but I don't think that I've certainly intended, if I did, to insult anybody. And that idea that we're appropriating things and stealing them and dismissing people is well beyond what any cook would ever think they were doing. They're trying to bring something delicious from somewhere they went to people that they think might appreciate it without ever intending to hurt, insult, or denigrate a culture. I can guarantee you that. How would you any of you say that you should preserve the history of your food in the face of appropriation? Well, as a cook, I don't feel that my job is necessarily to preserve the entire timeline of the Italian culture. My job is to provide deliciousness in a way that can provoke and delight people right now. That said, in the historical perspective of academia, there is an entirely different way of looking at it. But I don't feel that I need to look at it that way, although I'm fascinated by academia, but I'm out here trying to make people have a good time at dinner. So I'm not necessarily tied that much, nor am I insulted when someone makes a bad dish of Italian food and calls it something that I know it's not. I, I would want to add that I think, I mean, it is, academics are preoccupied with things that other people are not. And by the way, we don't have wine and flowers at our panels, so I'll try to bring that influence into um, future engagements. But. I think one of the reasons for me that it's important is because food is one of the most crucial justice issues of our time. And so it matters how we think about it, how we produce it, how we represent it. In each individual kitchen, obviously that weight would be too heavy, right, for a dish of pasta. But I, think, I feel like the consciousness of it, the conversations around it, um, the ways in which we imagine ourselves moving forward will determine how we, in fact, enact this kind of food justice, this food sustainability that we're all talking about in all these various ways. I feel like it's something that's gotten put aside in this conversation about appropriation is how it helps us think about what subjects are important. Right? So one of the things that I think about is the symbolic life of food. How do we show it to ourselves in movies, books, commercials, cartoons, even cookbooks is one of the genres that I study. And if you think about, for example, a movie like The Help, which is an iconic movie at this point, it is about the freedom of the central character and her finding her voice, right? the Emma Stone character. But what makes that possible is the black women who feed her. And whether they eat or not, or whether their children eat or not, is not central to the movie at all even though the context of the movie is the black civil rights movement. And so the reason it's important is because if we can't conceive of all of those women, not just the Emma Stone character, but the black women who are feeding her and the children who those women are not feeding as a consequence, as a part of our justice movement, then we won't make justice ever, right? Unless we begin to incorporate other kinds of subjects into our imagination. And I feel like that's why it's important. It's not that we all need to feel guilty or we need to feel torn and rend our garments and stop cooking and stop making the things that we're making. But I think that in making these kinds of things that we all make in restaurants, in dishes, in cookbooks, in movies, we're creating the landscape of our imagination from which we enact our policies. And so that to me makes it 
enormously important and enormously consequential, not just you know, um, in each of our kitchens, but as we do it more broadly as a culture. We have time for, for one more quick question. We have time for one more quick question. I think this is a quick question. It's basically just, and I'm just wondering about the idea of people who do go to other cultures, other countries, and they're not necessarily trying to appropriate, but when they come back, they want to share. And so whether it's at a restaurant or something like that, they can't necessarily share the history and the culture with every dish. But maybe they're saying, this, you know, this is so wonderful from this place that I just came from that I want to share it. And by having a delicious dish, that's your first step to understanding where it came from. And then when you're interested, you start you know, asking questions and finding out more. So is there a fair middle ground there? If it's not being bastardized, this, you know, the foods, it, but if they're being slowly introduced in a way that Americans can understand or accept, is that acceptable? Man, this is such an awesome stuff that we're talking about, and I think about this stuff all the time. And one thing, for me, I'm not a restaurateur, but I write, and I try to tell people stories, and I'm always listening to stories. And one thing that I've learned is that I might hear someone's story and think it's really amazing and think, oh, I gotta tell that story. And that's kind of appropriation. Whereas if I can create for this person a way to tell his or her own story or create a platform for a person to tell their own story, that is accomplishing my goal of sharing this very interesting and amazing thing, but I'm not taking it over. And so I think the same thing can be said for restaurants or any other medium in which we share culture and influences, which is what if instead of saying, oh wow, I went to Mexico and I had these amazing tacos, I'm gonna come serve them at my Chinese restaurant or whatever, I don't know. Uh, what if you're like, I'm gonna have one night where I invite these grandmas to come make these tacos and I'm gonna like share their thing with the press that I have access to and that's how I'm gonna give them a platform to speak for themselves. Yeah, so. <laughs> Thank, I think we're out of time. Thank the four of you very much. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. Thank with you, Frank. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Recklessness and courage, it's about time You understood which road to take It's a fine line And your decision makes a difference Get it wrong, you'll be making a big mistake Come home, brother, all is forgiven We all cried when you were driven away Come home, brother, everything is better Everything is better when you come home um, feel free to take a, we're going to take a short break if you want to check out some of the amazing books. That was Friday. Uh, on Saturday, while Foodie Articles was bumping downstairs, uh, Jason Stewart was manning a table in the lobby of the Ace. He was interviewing different folks with his version of the Proust questionnaire which elicited some pretty funny responses, as you can imagine. Is it Proust or...? I think it's Proust. All right, let's look it up, though, because I got corrected at the thing. That's why I'm saying it like that. Like, I think that's right. Right, 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 right. Marcel Proust. <laughs> Send me that link. <laughs> The long-form version of these interviews will be on Jason's podcast, The Stew. Check, check. Yeah, you're very, very streepy now that it's coming together. I want to see you walking down the sidewalk arm-in-arm arm with Alec Baldwin, perhaps. Is that something that you would be interested in doing? Um, Alec Baldwin, maybe. Maybe not. I'm going to be holding the mic and just throwing it in your direction, so sorry about that. Please introduce yourself and how people would know you. I am Andrea Gentle. I'm a photographer. I live in New York. Uh, I shoot food, lifestyle, travel with my husband, Martin Hires. We go by the team of Gentle and Hires. My name is Julia Sherman, and I am the author of Salad for President. Hi, my name is Carrie Diamond. I'm the editorial director of Cherry Bomb Magazine. I'm Dana Cowan, and you may know me as the former editor of Food and Mind Magazine or the host of Speaking Broadly on Heritage. Uh, my name is Mac Malakowski, and I'm the founding editor of a magazine called Mouthfeel. Mac Malakowski. 
Good name. Hi, I'm Liz Pruitt, and I come from San Francisco, where I co-own Tartine Bakery and Tartine Manufactory in the Mission District with my husband, Chad Robertson. Um, my name's Amy Chaplin, and I'm a chef and cookbook author. Nick Morgan, CERN, say hello. Ice cream god. So we're doing, uh, we're doing some Prowse questions food-related, as you know. So we're just going to fire it off. What bite of food makes me the happiest? Cookie dough. Cookie dough raw. Raw cookie dough, yes. I think uh, ceviche. Ceviche. It would have to be ceviche in Peru. So like no crappy tilapia or anything like that. Like. So not a shitty one. Not a shitty ceviche. Oh, definitely a big piece of salty pecorino. Oh, yeah. And it's not too salty for you. No, I love salt. Um, soup dumplings. Um, there's a place in Manhattan called uh, Cafe Shanghai Deluxe. I can't think of a better bite. A tiny little strawberry called a fraise de bois that has like the biggest amount of flavor. It's, it's amazing. It almost tastes like fake strawberry extract. It's the truffle of berries. Yeah, kind. that's a good way to put it, yeah. Brown rice. Brown rice? Oh my God, no, really perfect. Like you've got to soak it. I'm all about traditional methods of... Yeah, give me some brown rice tips. Okay, yeah, so all whole grains need to be soaked overnight before you cook them. Then you drain off the soaking liquid and then cook it with fresh water. This removes phytic acid, which makes them more digestible and more nutritious, so you can actually absorb the nutrients more, but it also makes it taste so much better. Like, it just is moist and a little bit sticky, and if you use short-grain brown rice combined with a little bit of sweet rice, soak it overnight, the recipe's in there, but it's like a cup of short-grain brown rice with a half a cup of sweet rice, and it is just the perfect combination of sticky and nutty and sweet, and when I eat that, I feel the same way like when I have miso. It's like grounding, nourishing, and just like my favorite food. Prince Street pizza, pepperoni slice. Boom. You do a foldy? No, I do the grandma slice. And I got to have a counter. I don't like eating pizza while I'm walking. I want to be able to enjoy it. And it doesn't take that long to eat, so just sit still already. There we go. Okay. In the kitchen, when you are cooking yourself, what is an ingredient that you find yourself overusing, perhaps? That's a really good question. Um... Like friends of yours would be like, oh man, she really needs to stop making all this rainbow shard. I'm getting sick of it or something like that. It's probably grains. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I could really eat grains three meals a day and I have been told it's not always the best thing. <laughs> you need some protein in there too, but I gravitate towards that. So probably it's like, oh, are we having another whole grain porridge for breakfast? More brown rice, you know. Anchovies. Oil, probably. Like, I just glug, 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 glug. Everything that in a recipe it says use a tablespoon, I'm like, Never. That's ridiculous. Maybe I overuse honey or chili. I'm definitely a honey hoarder. I pick honey up wherever I go. I have maybe 50 different kinds of honey from Mexico, Burma, Bhutan. Everywhere I go, I find honey. Honey hoarder. The ingredient I overuse is avocado. I know avocado is super trendy, but in every possible form. I love aiolis, which seems a little weird, but if you can dip it, you can stick it for me. Creamy. Very creamy. Creamier the better. So you, you also are a mayonnaise head, I'm sure. I do. I have patatas bravas, aioli. I love mayonnaise with sriracha. I love sour cream, half and half in my coffee. I can't stop. Somebody help. For a guy who likes creamy things so much, you've managed to maintain a svelte figure. So well done. Thank you so much. Would it surprise you that I'm from California and I would say avocado? <laughs> no, because you're not the first person to say that. <laughs> it's less so for us right now about overusing an ingredient than it is that we had to back down on the collaborations. Oversaturated on too many people with their fingers up in my pot. Much like Supreme, you are doing too many collabs, fam. The whole culture is over-collabed. What is a dish that you make... Everyone loves it, all your friends love it. You don't really get the big deal. You're kind of sick of making it, but every time you have a dinner party, you gotta make it. I would never make anything that I don't love. Is that an answer? That's a really good question. Nobody, I wouldn't say I'm sick of it, of any of my, I wouldn't make it if I was sick of it. Oh, shit, there is something. So there was this cake from the Baby Cakes cookbook, like the first cookbook. I think they did more than one, maybe, I don't know. And it was this black bean carob cake and it had tahini and dates and black beans and carob and you pulsed it all together in a food processor and it 
it it was like a facsimile of a of a chocolate cake, but highly disappointing. I found out later. On paper, that cake sounds very disappointing. I swear, it's really good. It was like the black beans don't have any flavor; they just give texture and like the denseness. I mean, I understand that if you're in you're in the market for a chocolate cake and you get anything even related to a bean, you might be a bit upset. Mm. There's a recipe that I ripped from Tuck Shop, the Australian place that just does like a tahini-based kale salad, which is genius. It's like, you know, it's vegan. It's kind of a crowd pleaser. So if I'm coming to your potluck, I'm probably bringing that. And you're rubbing the tahini in? Yeah, it's a whole thing. When you're, say, you're at home cooking for your family, what's a dish that, or you're like, you're going to a dinner party and everyone's like, oh, you have to make this one specific dish, like your real crowd pleaser. Lately, I guess I would be making Samin's uh, cuckoo sabzi, which is this Persian green omelet that's just packed with herbs. And in fact, I was going to make it today for my event, but Samin made it for her event last night and she won because she's the Persian. Um, <laughs> so so that's, that's one of the things because people, it's both like when you see it being made, you can't believe they fit that many greens into this thing. And then eating it is just amazing. Seems like Persian food's really having a big moment right now. Do you agree? I would agree with that. Yeah. Okay. Which chef do you admire the most, dead or alive? That's a... <laughs> no. I would say, like, so um, once I was on stage with Julia Child and Marcel Hazan and Victor Hazan and Patricia Wells, and it was in Aspen at the Food and Wine Classic in Aspen. And I asked Julia Child basically that question, except it was about trends, and she shut me down. She's like, that is a media question, and I'm not going to answer it. And I'm just taking Julia's. Well, at least we learned that you do a very good impression of Julia Child. Well done. What, uh, what chef do you admire the most? Can't say Batali. You know, it's hard, because he's like... He's such an incredible uh, force. It, it's so generous and like that as a as a human being. Um, after that, I'm a huge fan of April Bloomfield. She is a consummate, consummate professional under any circumstance. I think Angela Demiuga, who is the chef at Mission Chinese. Wait, what's her Instagram handle? Swimsuit issue. I recently followed her. Best. I would normally ask what chef do you admire the most, but I'll I'll say what. What photographer and chef do you admire the most? Well, my daughter's an amazing photographer, and while that might be a lot of nepotism there, uh, her generation really uses photography and their craft in a political way, and I love that. Uh, I like Sally Mann because she is so prolific, and she deals with so many issues of like family and death and decay and just things I find really interesting. And a chef, well, I do love Magnus from Favakin, but I didn't really like it when he ate the puffin on the chef's table. That was going too far. Oh, yeah, I really want to go to that restaurant, but then when the the puffin, yeah. and then like and then the, uh, the egg. The cake of the puffin, and then he stole the eggs from the sides of the mountain. That was a little too much, but as a chef, I love him, and I love what he's doing, and I, I've been lucky enough to like go in the woods with him when he's been foraging, and... And what he does at Favakin is so visually beautiful. So I love him. Um, Samin, who was here earlier, who just has Salt Acid Fat, her new book, she is a great connector of people and super exciting. And her new book is going to be like the new Bible for, it's like taking a course. Wonderful. Yeah. You were just mentioning that you are fascinated by decay and death and all those things. How, uh, how would you like to die yourself? Okay. Well, I definitely don't like to be cold, so I would say I would want to be cremated. You don't want to be frozen to death. No, I don't want to be. I don't want to be with uh, bugs. I don't want to be cold. I don't want any of that. So the fire right away. I think yeah, no shit, of course. But I was recently on a trip to India, and Alice Waters was on this trip, and she was telling me there's a mushroom suit you can wear. You put the mushroom suit on, and it like decays your body, eats your body. So I haven't had a chance to check this out. Yo, is this real? It's real. It's the mushroom suit. You got to check it out. Is this, so you put the mushroom suit on and it, uh, is it normally for like a, somebody who's already passed? And that's, you know, you put the mushroom suit on the person and I don't know, you just... And then they become one with earth, they compost. 
They compost. Uh, yeah, I would like to die in my sleep, maybe around the age of like 85. I've actually thought about this. 85, a good run, not too old. You still have your wits about you. Are there drugs involved? Hopefully, hopefully some good edible chocolates. I don't know. I got some in the up in the in the hotel room if you want. You don't want to live so long that that you outlive your friends and your family and your body itself. You don't want to just be like, Ugh. okay, that's a good age to die. Knock on wood that you die that that age. I do definitely want a sea burial uh, with oysters, kind of beautiful summer, <laughs> linen. So burial at sea. Got it. Okay. Do people have different answers to this? Like, I would love to, really, I'd love to die in my sleep. Um, boom. Like, just, I'd love to wake up dead. Actually, probably jumping out of a plane or off of a bridge. Because that absolute thrill right before you die, that sheer exhilaration and terror, that would be it. Yeah, airplane sounds good. Because you got a minute or two of, of some good free fall. A really tall building where you can, like, see perspective right before you fall, you see buildings flying past you, whatever, that would be really interesting too. I feel like we're only moments away from a Nick Morgenstern suicide. You painted that picture just a little too nicely. Okay, what is your most treasured possession in the kitchen? Vitamix? I have these two pot holders that I've had since the 90s that came from one of Target's first collaborations with Cynthia Rowley. You got the Rowleys? Yes, I got the Rowleys. They are... Name a price. I'll buy it now. They are kind of gaudy, but they are so well made, and I just can't part with them. They don't match my style at all, but I am just inexplicably attached to these potholders. Oh, my mortar and my pestle, which was my mother-in-law's mom. So um, it's a really simple stone mortar and pestle, but I really love it, and I use it every single day. I have a really beautiful collection of knives. Oh, my knife. Yeah, it's a Japanese vegetable knife. Japanese vegetable knife. That's what they call it. It's nothing fancy, but I mean, I really couldn't do much without it. After that, it's probably like a microplane zester for everything. You know, I use it for everything. Love a microplane. Uh, my grandmother's platter pan. It's a, it's a Swedish pan that makes small, like three-inch uh, pancakes that are almost like a bit cross between a crepe and a pancake. And it's, it's her pan that my mom passed down to me. I love that thing. <laughs> this is a, I'm going to do, this is a two-parter. What is your most treasured piece of photography equipment and your most treasured piece of kitchen equipment? Okay, my most treasured piece of kitchen equipment is a great knife. I have a very beautiful knife that I got from my father, an old Sabatier knife. I like to get it sharpened every now and then. It's just beautiful. It's a beautiful patina. Um... My most treasured piece of photo equipment is probably my Deerdorf 8x10. It's where I started in photography. You know, you got the cloak, the big film backs. Um, and I haven't pulled it out for a while, but I think I'm going to start a series on 100 women, and I'm going to use that. I'm going to go back to 8x10. So that's, that's the, old, the, the big old-timey camera that's set up on an easel, and you put the, the black cape behind your head. And is there a big poof when the... When the that is a misconception. The big poof did come from some kind of flash, but the way they show it in the old movies, that is not how it happened at all. But the thing I like about 8x10 is that uh, it's solitary. You're working by yourself. You're looking through the glass. Photography's now moved into this new realm where everything's digital. There's a monitor. Everyone's commenting on your photograph before you've even made it. It's, it's communal. And it's referendum, and it's super frustrating because why I love photography was it was very private, and I just looked through my viewfinder, I could make the composition I wanted, and it was very private. So I kind of want to find a little bit of that again somehow. I've had the same Japanese chef knife that I purchased when I moved to New York in 2001. Everyone has said knife for the most part. If you have the knife, then that's the answer. Some people don't have the knife. They haven't found it yet. I was lucky. I found mine like 16 years ago, and I still have it. It's here right now. And it's a Japanese knife, which has a specific technique for sharpening it. And I was taught how to sharpen the knife. I'd had the knife for about a year and a half, and I was, really, I was given instruction on how to sharpen the knife by Nobu himself. It was crazy. Flex bomb. <laughs> Highlight. So, yeah, the knife just has this crazy history, and it's still 
like in flawless condition. And it was, it's like the best investment I've ever made in my life because I've had it for so long and it's still like perfect. Lastly, Nick, if you were to die and be reincarnated into a non-living object, what do you think it would be? 1972 Datsun 510 station wagon. You go straight to the Datsun wagon. I know what I am. What color? White. It's got dual colored headlights, yellow on the inside, white on the outside. It's a beautiful thing. If you want to check it out, it's in my garage in Brooklyn. If you were to be recreated as an object, what would it be? I was going to say a cat. <laughs> non non-living, non-living. Oh, a cat's not an object. Cat can't be an object. Object. I would want to come back as a pink Smeg refrigerator. I think I'd be... This is a hard question. Okay. If you want to do living, you can do living. Just don't say you're a cat. No, I wouldn't be a cat. I'm definitely um, a weasel or a, or a squirrel. Yo, I'm definitely a weasel just out of the gate, first thing. I've had this conversation a lot with my friends, but I like, I'm, you know, move really fast. I'm constantly putting things in my mouth and I'm sort of like everywhere at the same time. I, don't, I would say it, I haven't known you for long, just a few minutes, but you don't seem weaselly. Well, not weaselly in like the sense, in the like character. I think weasels get a bad rap. They're more just like, they're crafty and they're kind of like, you know. Crafty, scrappy, you, you get in, you get the job done. And you look good doing it. Svelte, well-dressed. Ample cheeks. Ample cheeks? You do have ample cheeks. I don't know, they don't necessarily look exactly like a weasel, but I act like one. Or some small rodent. A cannoli? A cannoli. What a cute answer. A tree? Non-living. Oh, sorry. I thought you meant non-human. Um, you can't say microplane. Oh, oh, what would it be? Um, maybe a building? Maybe like an old building. What kind of old building? Are we talking like a, a regular, like a home or a skyscraper, an Ikea? What is no, it? No, no, no. I was just imagining like a beautiful old brick building. I haven't had a chance to really illustrate the whole thing in my head, but because I've never been asked that question. Old brick building, like a nice little East Village brownstone. Yeah, okay. That sounds good. Yeah. I do think that every object is living. Good answer, hippie. Maybe, um, maybe an amethyst crystal? Because you can kind of get bathed in the sun, you're going to get purified, you're bringing energy to things. You look beautiful. Yeah, and you look beautiful, yeah. Amethyst crystal. Um, a crystal that when it refracts light creates rainbows. First of all, second person to want to be recreated as a crystal, and great follow-up description. So, so one that specifically reflects into a rainbow. Do you, are you a big rainbow fan? No, but it's... <laughs> Oh my God, like a Jean Arp sculpture. Any particular position that you're in as the sculpture? Well, it's just that they're so smooth and sexy and um, obviously three-dimensional and people can engage in all dimensions, visual, tactile. I just think that would be fun. Aspiring to be smoother and sexier. Rounder and harder, apparently. <laughs> Rounder and hard to the touch. Okay. Thank you so much for doing this. If people wanted to find you online, maybe your Instagram, would you like to give that up? Um, you can always find me at FW Scout or at Speaking Broadly, which is that radio show on Heritage. Thank you so much. Instagram account is Carrie Bomb. That's K-E-R-R-Y-B-O-M-B-E. I see what you did there. And uh, you could follow Cherry Bomb at Cherry Bomb Mag. Salad for president, just one word. And then for some reason, my Twitter is salad number four president, but it's like too late to go back. So maybe just follow me on Instagram because I'm a bad tweeter. I, I suddenly have like a, I want to talk to you about salads kind of. Okay, what's, what's your favorite alternative crouton? Oh, I make polenta croutons. They're like a lot of work, but if you make the polenta with tomato juice and broth, and then you you spread it on a sheet pan really thin, not really thin, like an inch and a half. Their recipe is in my book, if you might want to check that out. And uh, and you cut it up into cubes, and then you bake those. Those are like badass croutons. Hell yeah. Find me online at gentleandhires.com. Um, they can find me on Instagram. And we're also doing a series of photographic workshops where we now call This is the Wanderlust. And we take people to really far-flung corners of the globe and take them on these intense expeditions. We went to Caros, Peru, 17,000 feet to this village that had only been discovered by anthropologists in the 50s. 
we take like small groups of people on these, so they can find us there too at thisisthewanderlust.com. Uh, mouthfeelmag.com. We have a list of all of our retailers on there, but you're welcome to use the web store. Uh, Definitely check out the web store for my favorite product that you sell, an artisanal popper. So Instagram, I'm Liz Pruitt. And is your Instagram, what is it, what is it mainly consisting of? Is it kids? Is it baked goods? Is it your cat? Um, Sunsets? Facebook is for cats, kids, and rainbows. Instagram is all professional. <laughs> Perfect answer. You could tell she's a damn pro. AmyChaplin.com. People can, uh, can find your book at home in the Whole Food Kitchen. I'm sure it's available everywhere you can find a good cookbook. And where can people find you online or on Instagram? Uh, it's at Morgenstern's NYC or it's at Nicholas Morgenstern. That's the, that's the personal account for when you want to see the scuba pics. Thanks so much, Nick. Thank you. Uh, you're listening to Public Announcement. I'm Chris Black. And I'm James Ellis. Thanks to Amanda and Kim for having us and to Jason Stewart for participating in another pod collaboration. Again, you can check out the long-form version of his interviews from the lobby of the Ace on the latest episode of The Stew, his food podcast. This week's show is edited and mixed by Jim Nicholas. Special thanks to Rob Nelson for doing sound at the Ace. He helped us capture that clean audio for the panel. <laughs> Always got to make friends with the sound guy. Uh, he seemed to be pretty impressed with your uh, your knowledge of late 90s Florida grindcore. Um, is, that, is that how you want him over? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You get a metal guy talking about Asuk, and, and you're good. You're good. <laughs> wow, wow. Uh, well, stay tuned for more general interest content here on the podcast. And come find us every day on publicannouncement.org. Cool. Yeah.